Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 137 being recorded on Thursday, July 19th, 2018. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason Scott Show listeners. Jason, how is your summer going? Uh, It is going terrific. I am uh, just starting sort of a a heavy travel session for me. So I just got back from San Francisco and I leave on another trip tomorrow. Um, but I, I feel like the big news this week is I read that, uh, Spiffy got some new funding. So congratulations. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. We've, um, uh, so for listeners that may not know, so I started channel advisor 2001, moved to exec chairman in 2015, uh, and then moved, moved over to Spiffy full time. I kind of, experimented with it in 2014 and a little overlap there. Uh, and yeah, it's been fun. So we're on demand car care, uh, started with car wash. We've added oil change and now even have some products on the market. So we have uh, a cool IOT device called spiffy blue that you plug into your vehicle. And, uh, there's a companion app that tells you all that's going on with your car. So, so it's been fun. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm passionate about, digital services. I think that's kind of where the future is going. So decided to put my money and time where my mouth is. And we just raised uh, our second round this week. So it's good to get that behind us so we can keep servicing customers. Uh, That's awesome. And uh, you keep expanding in the cities too, right? Like, aren't you, uh, where are you now? Yeah, we're in five. We're we're holding firm at five right now because we've um, had this explosion of fleet business. So we we started out really with office park uh, with consumers at office parks and residences, uh, and then we added oil change at unlocked fleet. So we we've been kind of digesting as much fleet as we can get on our plate, and uh, but we'll be adding more cities soon. So we're in Raleigh, Charlotte, Dallas, Atlanta, and Los Angeles now. Awesome. I'm kind of sad because I'm assuming that the climate in Chicago means I'm not going to be next on your list. Yeah, we've identified our first 50 cities, and unfortunately Chicago is not in the first 25, but uh, we'll eventually get to you. Uh, I will be waiting, or I'll just move. I'll just get so frustrated at my lack of spiffy that I'll move. Yeah, yeah. There's there's five markets for you to retire to that, that you know, maybe we'll get you there. <laughs> uh, <laughs> nice. I like the thought of retirement. Cool. And you were just in San Francisco at uh, the NRF Retail Tech. Uh, any interesting things you want to give us a trip report on there? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, so this is an interesting show. Uh, NRF has had this show for a number of years, and it's mainly been focused on the CIOs and CTOs. Um, so they sort of had a private party for a number of years. I think for a long time it was um, permanently located in Half Moon Bay, uh, then it may have moved uh, around a little bit, so it may have gone to Laguna Niguel one year and San Diego last year. Um, but there was also a digital merchandising show that that, that Shop.org put on, um, and, and that show has been retired. And so what they've kind of done with NRF Tech is they've expanded the tent to include all the uh, the digital business leaders and have more 
more overlapping content for CIOs and business leaders. So I would, uh, I'm not sure that NRF agrees with this definition exactly, but I would characterize this as sort of the second year um, where this this show has a broader scope. Um, and and uh, I think it, it had a lot of interesting content. And um, I think I think all of us that attended got got a lot out of it. Um, so it was two and a half days uh, in San Francisco of uh, pretty jam packed content. And it's a you know, it's a smaller venue, a smaller group. So it's much more intimate. Like you you basically have an opportunity to network with everyone else that attends. And, you know, it's 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 more of what I would call a. Uh, a conference than like a, a big exhibition show, if you will. Cool. What were some of the key takeaways? Uh, yeah. So there were, there were a number of different topics. Um, the, there are too many speakers to go over everyone. Uh, one that I was particularly looking forward to is Katie Finnegan. Um, so she runs uh, store eight for Walmart, which is Walmart's incubation lab. Um, and, uh, she, I think she, she was the founder of a couple of startups that Walmart acquired. Um, and she kind of laid out their methodology. And it's, it's interesting to me because there, there have been a bunch of retailers that have had internal in- incubation labs. And um, I think it's fair to say on the aggregate that they haven't actually been that successful. Um, and the, the Walmart one, you know, is, uh, is these are wholly owned LLCs. So if you... Uh, Walmart is essentially going to acquire you and then incubate you. And so then there are all kinds of, you know, questions that come out, you know, what does the exit look like for the, uh, the, the founders and the management team and, you know, how do the finances work and what are the success criteria and all those sorts of things. So it was kind of interesting. Um, I think Katie is like pretty realistic about the track record of retail incubation labs. Um, and so, you know, she, she was pretty candid about, uh, where where they felt like they had the problem solved and where they thought like you know there were still open questions to be answered um and she she kind of painted this maturity model and you know she highlighted several several um companies that are in the the story labs and where they are in that maturity model and so the if if uh if there's six stages of maturity you know um the most mature thing they have is this uh, jet black, which is kind of at the third stage of maturity, uh, which is this kind of, um, concierge personal shopping, uh, service and delivery service in New York city. Um, and so most of what they have is even earlier stage than that. So, so that was interesting. It was interesting to hear her thoughts about incubation in general, and then some of the specific initiatives Walmart had, um, uh, you know, a bunch of guests from the show, uh, we're speaking there. So, so, uh, Billy May, who's the, the CEO of Sir Latab was on a, uh, a panel talking about, um, uh, how, how to prioritize, uh, technical initiatives within, uh, a, a, a company. Um, Rob Schmoltz, who's been on the show from Talbot's, uh, did a, did a couple of panels. Um, the, uh, John Nordmark, who's been on the show, uh, for his iterate, um, uh, incubation lab. Uh, he brought a couple of the companies in, in his lab to, uh, kind of talk about new, new companies. And there were, there was also some uh, VCs that had some of their companies. And so, uh, um, there was kind of some interesting startups, uh, that we, that we got to hear from some chat bots. There's a company called Chatter Research. Um, and, uh, there's a, 
kind of newer marketplace aggregator um, uh, called Hinge2, which uh, you you may be more familiar with. I wasn't super familiar with them, um, but as, as you well know, you know tons of interest and traction in the in the marketplace space going on. Uh, and then the very last speaker, um, I I've uh, found uh, pretty interesting, and uh, I think I think we need to get him on the show. So uh, it's a guy, it's a guy named uh, Peter Schwartz who's a futurist, um, and uh, I think he's got like a boondoggle job for Salesforce.com. So he's the head futurist for Salesforce.com. Um, but but listeners may uh, be more familiar with Peter Schwartz's work. Uh, he's the main main character that the Matthew Broderick character was based on in the movie War Games. So he was like literally a young hacker that broke into some government databases and he was a, a consultant on the movie War Games. And several years later, he as a futurist, he partnered with Steven Spielberg to paint a picture of what the future would look like for the movie Minority Report. So all those famous scenes of, um, uh, you know, facial recognition triggering custom ab- ads inside the gap in the Minority Report were ideas that that he put together. Um, and so he had a ton of fascinating stories. He, he, he said, uh, you know, that I have to be honest, like when we were, uh, brainstorming minority report, we thought we were, we were thinking about what the future would look like in 2040 or 2050. And he's like, basically everything that we had in that movie, like is now here and it's 2018. So he's like, you know, we may have gotten some of the ideas, right, but we were way wrong on the, on the time horizon. Very cool. I'm a fan already. I love those two movies. Yeah. Joshua, spoiler alert. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so he was interesting and uh, it, w- it was silly, but he he's like, uh, he, he's an older gentleman. Um, and he, he's like, I, I'm 72 years old. I'm the oldest employee at Salesforce. And the irony is not lost on me that the oldest guy at Salesforce is responsible for the future. <laughs> interesting. What did he predict? Uh, yeah, so he, we talked about a bunch of things. Um, we, we talked about AI, and that's uh, an interesting one because I feel like there's kind of two camps. I think there's people, and maybe Elon Musk is in this camp, that think the AI is super dangerous and that the killer robots are coming. Um, and Peter Schwartz was like, that's not what's happening with the AI that we have now. And he, you know, he made his arguments for why we, we, like, we really aren't making very fast progress on general AI that has sort of generalized intelligence that could become sentient. Um, but he, you know, he did talk about a bunch of the risks with the kind of AI that is emerging. And he talked about like, you know, in a near future when all these AI, um, algorithms are deciding like what medicine, what medical treatments we, we qualify for and whether or not we get credit and all these things, you know, will there be, transparency about all those decisions and what rights will we have and and things like that so his his pov on on uh uh, ai was a little less like um daunting than than some folks and we talked about the future of work um you know there are a lot of folks that think that like all the jobs are going to get eliminated by all this automation and that you know we're all going to be sitting around without anything to do and again he kind of felt like that that wasn't likely to be the case because he he kind of talked about how Hey, you may not have a lot of people sitting in trucks driving trucks around, but he envisions this future where just like we have all the Air Force drone pilots sitting in Las Vegas that fly the planes over Afghanistan and then go home to their families in Las Vegas, that you could have a ton of 
truck drivers that are moving trucks on, you know, through the commercial uh, residential streets and then getting them on the highway where they drive autonomously. And, you know, he he had a kind of some some data points to support his his hypothesis is that lots of new jobs emerge to replace the jobs that tend to go away. Interesting. Cool. Any other highlights? Um, those were some of the, the, the stuff that, that, uh, jumped out to me. There were a lot of like sort of topic specific stuff. So, you know, topics about big data, topics about how, um, to hire, how to structure innovation in companies. Um, you know, so there, there was a, a little something for everyone in there, but, but, uh, um, I feel like those are those were some good highlights, um, and I was a little distracted through the whole thing because I feel like there was some other e-commerce stuff going on at the same time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was a it's a, been a busy week in the world of e-commerce, uh, and, and since we're coming off Prime Day 2018, we thought we'd jump into news and start off with. Amazon News. Your margin is their opportunity. Yeah, so let's start off with uh, Prime Day. It got off to a rough start. What, uh, I know you were tracking that, and I saw you uh, at least quoted two or three times out there in the press. What What did you make of that? Yeah, so, I mean, A, I'll start off by saying I was completely surprised and caught off guard. I feel like... Um, Amazon has had a shockingly good record of reliability on all these peak days. Um, and so if you would have asked me up front to like make a bet on, on which retailers were likely to suffer an outage, uh, during a, a peak event, I would not have picked Amazon. So I was, um, somewhat surprised that they had this outage right off the bat. A lot of talk about like what the impact of the outage was in terms of hurting, um, their revenue, hurting their prime subscribers, hurting sales of their their first party products. Yeah, one one thing that was interesting is it, you know as you followed it on Twitter, um, people discovered that if you use the smile uh, you know interface where uh, you anything you buy donates money to a charity, um, and I had previously set that up, and I was able to go through Smile. I was hard down for probably the first four hours, uh, but I was able to go through Smile and, and get it to work, which to me made it feel more like a networking thing. We'll probably never know what happened, but it was unusual to me that there were, were little slices that were working. Yeah. For listeners that haven't been responsible for sort of, um, uh, peak availability, like a highlight prime day is, is perfectly designed to be the worst case scenario from an IT system standpoint, right? Like, you know, number one, we have all uh, of this traffic coming at the same hour, right? Like, so you have this huge peak, um, which if you're really worried about uptime, you would try to do something to spread out that demand more. Um, but even worse, uh, with all of these short lasting deals and all the personalization on the Amazon site, um, very little of the, of the Amazon prime day experience can be cached. Um, so, you know, there are all these things that you like where you would kind of compromise the customer experience to, um, to make it uh, an easier load on the servers if you're really worried about availability. Um, and, and Prime Day is a perfect storm of like all the, all the best customer experience practices that are, you know, extra challenging for the IT guys. And so, so obviously, you know, it, it did come to bite them somehow this year. Yeah, well, um, we'll see. They'll get better. 
that's the the thing you learn about Amazon is when they take a misstep, they they learn a lot and then they they get better. Yeah. Uh, so I'm like one thing that uh, I'll be curious about, and hopefully some of some of our uh, friends that are um, uh, marketplace sellers on the site may may be able to share some insight here. But if you were a prime deal that had one of those early slots and you were disrupted. Like I'll be curious to see if Amazon does any kind of make good for for those vendors, or if they just miss their window, or or how they're handling that. I, I chatted with three or four people, not specifically about this outage thing, and they had deals going at that time, and they said that their deals sold out in like even faster than they thought they would. So so it's weird. It does seem to be, and I saw a heat map that showed there was only certain cities who were impacted. So it's it's kind of a, an anomaly to me. Um, the other thing that's interesting is that, to my knowledge, AWS itself wasn't down. So, you know, it's definitely specific to Amazon's own usage of their infrastructure, which kind of points to your data thing or some kind of an internal, just their network, just their their slice of the whole AWS network. I don't know. It, it's a, it is kind of a mystery. Yeah, yeah. It'll be interesting to see if any more uh, info leaks. Uh, a side note, uh, I think there were also some reports from Amazon Flex drivers that the Flex app was down, which I like also sort of bore on my my theory that maybe there were some product data problems. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, so despite all that, uh, they you know estimates are out that they did about three point five billion, and I believe that's up from two point four last year. Uh, now Amazon doesn't release; they they always frustratingly give you like little clues of how the day went. Uh, they'll talk in terms of growth and unit numbers ish kind of things. Um, so those are all estimates of how big it was. Uh, it was six hours longer this year. So there's a little apples and oranges in that comparison. Uh, and then you and I were, were kind of talking in the pre-show in the green room, uh, the virtual green room, uh, that it's in more countries this year for sure. Australia is its first year at prime day. So, so hopefully they had uh, an exciting time down under. Uh, you, you can give us a live report because you're going to Australia soon. So that'll be exciting. You can kind of tell us how they felt about prime day. Exactly. Um, Just to answer your question, I booked a trip tomorrow. Good. Good thinking. Yeah. Uh, my advice is to make sure you download a lot of movies. And then, yeah, did you happen – I know you like live on top of a Whole Foods or something like that. Did you happen to go into a Whole Foods during the Prime Day excitement? I, I know a lot of people were uh, were trying to take advantage of some deals there. There was something where you, you could – on Prime Day, you got $10 off in the store and online if you went in that day. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I did not get to take advantage myself. I do live in very close proximity to a Whole Foods, but I was, of course, down in, in San Francisco. So I, I didn't get to experience it firsthand – um, but all the reports that I've seen is, uh, that prime day was very favorable in the whole foods that like, you know, the, the month leading up to it, that they had really like done a good job of starting to roll out prime benefits. And so they had kind of trained a bunch of the, the, the whole food shoppers that were also prime members to like get the whole foods app ready. Um, and you know, arguably some of the best financial deals that they offered were, you know, you, you, if you gamified everything at Whole Foods, you essentially could get $30 in extra, um, extra cash, um, which is, you know, on a not significant amount of purchases. So that, you know, that, that was pretty substantial. That's like 2% off my average Whole Foods, uh, checkout. (laughs) Sure. But I'm bummed. Uh, a couple observations, uh, from my side on prime day, you know, the, the sales, everyone always focuses on the sales, 
But but I've kind of come to believe that, that yeah, that's part of what Amazon's going for there. But the real benefit, you know, that probably outweighs. So let's say it is three and a half billion. Um, I think the real benefit comes from the the juice that flows into the ecosystem elements that Amazon has uh, because of Prime Day. So so first of all, you have a bunch of Prime signups. Um, they don't reveal that obviously, but they, in the past they've said things like, you know tens of millions of signups for prime day and those kinds kinds of numbers uh this year they're kind of you know as you point out leveraging that whole foods intersection so so i've seen reports that say prior to the acquisition there's only 40 percent overlap there between whole food shoppers and prime members so that that's like a huge audience that they can get over into prime and they're obviously focused on that um i also saw a report that they 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 announced a million connected home devices were sold. Uh, and on, on the show here, we've been, uh, I would like pat ourselves on the back. Uh, we've been early on this that we felt like the Echo and all of its uh, associated devices, uh, Alexa-powered devices, uh, it were, were a really big opportunity for Amazon. And now you know, they're selling a million units in one day or 36 hours is, is pretty amazing. Um, another one that we've been pretty early on is talking about the ads that that we think Amazon ads are going to be pretty big, and we're seeing, you know, CPGs and brands um, really spend a lot of money there. Uh, everyone I talked to at a brand had really dialed up their ad spend during Prime Day, um, so so that's a really kind of cool catalyst that Amazon has for getting people to really come onto the ad platform, experience it on a day that's pretty crazy, uh, and hopefully, you know, uh, from the Amazon side, at least get addicted. Um, kind of tangentially to that, before Prime Day, uh, one of the, one I think the smartest Wall Street guys on this is John Blackledge at Cowan. He has raised his ad number for Amazon, just the ad number, to $36 billion in revenue uh, over the next five years. So that that's almost like the equivalent of of a Facebook, uh, you know, uh, size scale business that he believes Amazon will be building over the next five years. Now, obviously, that's Facebook today. In five years, Facebook will be bigger, but just trying to get a little scale to it uh, because that's a just kind of an insanely big number. Um, there are some uh, last couple of things kind of around this idea of the ecosystem that benefits and uh, aside from the sales. Uh, Third-party sales were reported to grow 89%. This is from CNBC's numbers, uh, and orders were up 69%. So uh, it was, you know, in in, in some years we've seen Amazon for Prime Day, the traffic gets absorbed by kind of the Amazon first party and owned products and private labels and that kind of stuff. This year, they, they did a really good job of splashing it all through the marketplace. So so we saw, uh, you know, I've anecdotally talked to a fair number of third party sellers that just had a, a, a very robust Prime Day. And, and there's that CNBC data. Um, and then speaking of brands, it was interesting to see uh, the brands that participated. So you had uh, – and these – by participating, they, they typically had a pretty big spotlight on that homepage of deals. So you saw uh, a lot of this around uh, soft lines. So we saw Under Armour, Wrangler, Champion, Columbia, Calvin Klein, Adidas, and Reebok. Um, and then interestingly, it's also who didn't really play. So Nike, uh, to my knowledge, I never saw them, and I've read a lot of the – the reports of folks that track this uh, pretty closely, uh, they did not participate in Prime Day in a meaningful way. Skechers, Hanes, Converse, and Ralph Lauren. Uh, so, so those are some other interesting kind of aspects of Prime Day to think about. Is yeah, the sales are good, and you can't sneeze at uh, over three billion dollars. But I think the real benefit—it's probably you know another five or six billion—comes from these ecosystem impacts. 
Yeah, for sure. And I don't know if you saw it. I thought it was actually from an Amazon press release. But one of the things that uh, they did claim is that it was the biggest day, single day ever for Prime signups. So they added more people on Prime Day than they ever had before, which isn't surprising. Yeah, so you would guess the last highest was last Prime Day. So yeah, I, guess oh, I think they did say that again uh, uh, last year. So I, I think they they exceeded last year's already good numbers on Prime signups, just sort of highlighting your point. Um, I Another thing that they put in the press release that's also uh, kind of fun is they like – they highlight the best-selling non-Amazon products in every country, um, which I, I think it's always interesting to just look at the trends there. Um, so I think almost across the board in every country, the, the prime products, uh, the Amazon products are the best sellers. So the Fire and the, uh, the Echo stuff. Um, but non-Amazon stuff in the U.S. and Canada, uh, the Instapot is the, the best-selling item. Um, and, there's a bunch of other countries where the best-selling item is a kind of high-ticket consumer good. So, you know, there's some countries where TV sold particularly well. Uh, the video game platforms were uh, really good sellers in a bunch of countries. Um, you know, some, like, uh, expensive uh, SD memory cards were big sellers in a bunch of countries. Um, but then what's interesting is there's another whole set of countries that have like very different shopping behaviors and you see like um, everyday essential consumer uh, consumer package goods being the big sellers. Right. So, uh, so like, uh, you know, some, some food item or some like cleaning soap or something like that. Right. And so, it, you know, there is this kind of bifurcation of, uh, of um, countries where, where I feel like, you know, their grocery shopping is still predominantly, uh, brick and mortar and they use e-commerce for all these these high ticket items and then there's you know countries where all the shopping has has shifted to e-commerce and so you see things like laundry detergent being the the best prime day uh item in japan for example yeah they sold uh, over three hundred thousand of those um what are they called cooking pots it's crazy yeah the instapot is a crazy instapot. phenomenon in and of itself online and offline but um but yeah it's a it's a fast mover on amazon for sure Cool. It was also interesting to see what other retailers did on Prime Day there. Uh, I think it's kind of funny. Amazon has them kind of in a, uh, you know, a check kind of a or maybe even checkmate kind of position. Uh, do they ignore it or do they participate? Do they mention Amazon? What, what did you see there? Yeah. So tons of retailers have sales. And to me, it's a no brainer that you should have a sale on Prime Day. Like I think it's it's so in the uh, ethos of e-commerce shoppers now that it's a, a shopping day. Um that you really missed out if you didn't have some promotions to push people over to the edge. And I would argue, especially since that first hour had this outage, if you went to Amazon and you had a glitch, you're one click away from buying something somewhere else. And so, you know, um, I think other retailers could definitely, not to the same level as Amazon, but, you know, there definitely is a halo effect for the whole whole e-commerce industry. Um, and, you know, without naming any names, I can tell you I had probably half a dozen clients that had their their top sales day of the year um on prime day um and so it it is absolutely a big shopping day that has a broader effect than just amazon um i think the interesting strategy is do you call it a back to school uh sale do you call it uh you know 
um, Cyber Monday in July? Like, you know, do you just have it be a promotional day or do you overtly um, sort of counter program to to Amazon and call it Prime Day? Like, you know, that potentially could help you from an SEO standpoint. Um, but, you know, you're also sort of uh, uh, promoting your competitor and acknowledging uh, their success and, and, you know, psychologically you're celebrating their birthday ironically enough um so so i I think we saw some retailers that very overtly had prime day sales and some detailers that were a little more more subtle about it um and then when the outage happened i think you know it was going around on twitter that like office depot sent out sort of a uh a smart aleck email um you know telling shoppers that if uh uh, they're tired of looking at pictures of dogs that they could come shop on on Office Depot, and I, I have to be honest, uh, that just feels like tempting fate and uh, and uh, sort of kicking a monster that you don't want to kick. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's like doing live demos. It's just Murphy's Law is just begging begging for attention when when you do that. Exactly. Cool. Any other Amazon things uh, you want to cover before we move on? Uh. No, I think those were um, all, all the sort of big things that jumped out at me. Cool. So uh, it was a couple of weeks dominated by Amazon, but in the non-Amazon side, uh, you know, one thing I wanted to talk about is uh, kind of the biggest news in marketplaces that's really gone unnoticed. We, we've we've talked about it a little bit on the show, but I wanted to kind of circle back is uh, and uh, and this may be you know, some confusing marketing, but, but Google within the Google express system, they have this new, uh, offering called a, see, I always forget about it, uh, shopping action. Uh, and it's essentially where you can buy things. So it's a mobile kind of ad unit where it's effectively a marketplace where you can check out right on the Google page. Uh, so, so that's interesting. And, you know, they are adding a ton of retailers to the program and, uh, I guess this is a little self-promotional, but but excited that Channel Advisor is a partner of theirs, and a, a large number of those folks are coming through our connections into that new marketplace. So, you know, Google is—they've always been flirting with the marketplaces, and you know, it feels like they've gotten a little more religion uh, on it this time. Um, and you can kind of feel it. This is the time of year when everyone's really kind of ramping into, uh, you know. Uh, Q3, obviously, but then, you know, here as we get into the end of Q3, uh, we'll be full throttle talking about holiday. So that's going to be, I think, one of the interesting things to watch this holiday is how serious does Google get about this? Um, Plus, we've seen some retailers uh, like Urban Outfitter has launched a marketplace. you know, there's there's a bunch of other things that that are going on out there. So uh, a lot of really interesting things going on under the radar in the world of marketplaces that I think are just getting uh, not not really covered or talked about because of all the exciting stuff Amazon's doing uh, with things like Prime Day. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I I do think um, the Google offerings are uh, there still is a little confusion out there because there are kind of a couple different commerce statuses that you can have. Um, with Google, so so obviously, you know, Google still has this Google Express system where they where where you can they'll accept orders from a bunch of retailers, and then like a Google employee will actually pick up that order from that retailer and deliver it to you. Um, and I think, as you you pointed out, um, there's been some recent traction with new retailers joining that ecosystem. Uh, like separate from that, although they can they can be married together, is this Google Shopping Actions, which is like the most uh, 
low friction way Google has ever had to actually buy a product out of a a Google promotional um, spot, right? And so, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I think uh, that originally launched as a pilot, and and you you know it was kind of hard to get in the program. Now they've opened it up, um, and I I think we're seeing lots of people for certain types of products take advantage of those Google shopping actions. Uh, I still feel like the industry needs a little more expertise around that that offering. Um, I'm always surprised how how unfamiliar people are with it. Um, and then there's this even weirder status. Uh, there are uh, unique partnerships from retailers with Google to be able to sell products through the Google Home uh, device. And so Walmart and Target, for example, um, are not in Google Express at the moment, but they are uh, selling their products through the Google Home ecosystem. And so, I mean, you know, between all that, you're, you know, I think we're, there's more commerce activity in the Google ecosystem than we've ever seen before. Yeah, yeah, and it's largely not getting talked about, which is kind of interesting. I guess, you know, in some ways, it, it actually gives Google some space to go and experiment and, and not have like a thousand spotlights on them while, while all this Amazon stuff's happening. Yeah, for sure. So we had, uh, we have been, had a very busy summer. So we are a little delinquent in getting to some listener questions. So we have a little bit of time here on the podcast uh, and want to jump into a couple of them that have been lingering out there. Uh, and Jason, I get to kick back and, and relax on these because they're both for you. Uh, so first we have Joan Abrams, uh, and Joan asks, how important are progressive web apps going to be for retailers? Are there any retailers doing this really well yet? So maybe, uh, uh, let's make sure we start at the top here. What's a progressive web app? How does that differ from a native web app or a responsive site and all that kind of stuff? And then uh, you can jump into the importance and then any retailers that, that you think are doing a great job. Yeah. Uh, so great question. So uh, uh, first of all, uh, progressive web app is a slightly unfortunate name because it makes it sound like um, this is an alternative to a traditional native app. And while it potentially can be that, I would argue that it's much more than that. Like, essentially, it's a set of standards for a way to build a mobile web experience that runs natively through the web browser. Um, and they've been supported by by Google Chrome, which is a very important mobile browser for some time. Um, but they were very poorly supported um, or not at all supported in uh, mobile Safari, which is a ex- hugely important mobile browser. And so what's exciting is um, as of the last um, iOS release, there's now full support for progressive web apps in both Chrome and Safari, um, which is essentially the bulk of, of uh, shoppers on mobile. Um, and uh, so there's a bunch of... Uh, tools that you can use to build a, a website. Um, and then there's this uh, feature uh, called Remote Workers, which essentially gives you the the capability to add um, native app-like functionality to the web experience and have it even function offline. So have it work even if you don't have um, connectivity. So for example, um, a Google can have a, a Google Maps or a Gmail experience that lets you, um, you know, uh, calculate directions in, in Google Maps or, or you know, read and compose emails, uh, even if you're in airplane mode, um, by leveraging these 
these remote workers. And what's uh, super important and unique about progressive web apps is uh, that they're really designed to be performance efficient. Um, and so um, by following the, 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 the PWA standards, you end up with a mobile web experience um, that's much faster and much more responsive than traditional responsive uh, mobile web designs were. Um, and so the site performs much faster and it can have a richer feature set. It can essentially have almost all the features that you could have in a native app. And so one thing you could do with it is build a native app that didn't require the app store. And that that is a huge thing because a lot of customers don't know how to download apps from the app store or they have app fatigue. Um, and if you're a retailer and you build all these cool functions in your app, uh, nobody ends up using them because uh, apps have such a small reach. But if you put those same features in your mobile web experience using PWA... Uh, you know, anyone that goes to your URL, like instantly has access to all those things. And so um, it's a great alternative to spending a fortune on building a native app, but it's also just the best way to build a mobile web experience. And because the performance is so much better, um, we're seeing that that the early retailers that have adopted uh, progressive web apps um, are are really killing it. Their, their mobile sites are much faster. They're getting much higher conversion rates. Um and uh, so it's I would highly encourage any retailer to put on their roadmap right now that they should be uh, redoing their mobile experience as a progressive web app. And I, ha I have to be honest, uh, very few retailers like hearing that because most retailers feel like they just spent the last one to two years building a proper responsive mobile site and they feel like they did a bunch of work and they want to feel like they're done now. And not too many of them are thrilled to hear that they need to start a new project to build it over using a, a new set of technologies. Um, but the but the retail the early retailers that are um, are are getting really good results, and so you know it, it really should be kind of high on your on your uh, your roadmap, particularly if, as all your customers are shifting to mobile. Cool. How do you? Um... So I, you know, we obviously write a lot of this kind of stuff at Spiffy. So we have, you know, you have Swift and Objective-C for a native app. And then uh, there's a lot of interesting JavaScript kind of based libraries for writing kind of, you know, uh, responsive sites or even apps like uh, React and those kinds of things. What what do you write a progressive web app in? Yeah, so it is a JavaScript-like um, uh, framework. Um but uh, with a much more constrained and specific set of libraries. Um, so, so often when you're, you're developing in JavaScript, you can, you can pick, you know, all these different uh, development library sets and only, a, you know, a small subset that have been highly optimized um, are allowed to be used in, in PWAs, but it's, it's mostly sort of uh, JavaScript style development environments. Okay. Yeah. Are there any retailers doing a really awesome job at it that you want to highlight? Um, so there are. Uh, they like again. Uh, it it hasn't for the most part been the huge retailers that have um, completely embraced uh, the the PWAs yet. Like there have been some retailers that um, have done a PWA like as a separate standalone site in a in a 
to replace an app in addition to a mobile website. But so some of the retailers that have gone full PWA and gotten some really good results, um, one of the biggest retailers out there, uh, to my knowledge, that's done it is, is Wes Elm. Uh, and then there's some you know smaller specialty retailers. I think Tommy Bahama. Um, I think Snap Deal is full progressive web app now. Um, I think Payless has a progressive web app. Some of these are folks that uh, leapfrog, so they never had a good mobile site before, and this is their first one. Um, Lily Pulitzer, Lancome, uh, some some folks like that. Uh, and so, if anyone, any of the listeners have a favorite progressive web app uh, retail site, I would uh, love to hear about it as well. Yeah, so let's uh, pick on West Elm. So, uh, just to be clear, uh, you don't just download their app, right? You just go to their website, and you're going to have a much more responsive or a, a much more uh, mobile-friendly experience than than if you their previous solution. Does that exactly? You go to westelm.com, right? And so, if you go to uh, westelm dot uh, com on a desktop browser, you're getting a desktop experience. If you go to that same URL on a mobile site, you're getting a, a mobile version of that experience. And the mobile version you'll get from West Elm is a progressive web app. And I, uh, I'm compelled, since you're calling me out on it, to highlight that the West Elm one may not be in full deployment yet. So uh, I think there's some A-B testing going on. So if you go to westelm.com, you may or may not get the progressive web app version. Um there's a different URL you can do to guarantee that you get the the West Elm ver- the PWA version, which is uh, I'll put the link in the show notes. But it's mobile-beta.westelm.com, and that kind of bypasses the test and guarantees you get the PWA version. Um, and but they shared some some public data from their their beta version that that's in this A/B test and the. The, the folks getting the PWA version of the experience um, are spending 15% more time on the site and they're spending 9% more revenue uh, than, than folks that are on the traditional responsive design version of the site. So, so pretty meaningful. Um, non-retail sites, there's a ton of, of big sites that have moved to progressive web app. And across the board, the performance metrics, the the page weight and the load times and the time to interaction um, are wildly better for progressive web apps. And whenever we see those performance numbers go up, bounce rate goes way down and engagement goes way up. So, you know, I think there's both uh, a big lesson about performance from the general market. And I think, you know, we're now starting to see some some pretty tangible retail results as well. Cool. Thanks. That's uh, some super secret insider information there. Uh, when you when you go to a retailer's site on mobile, is there some kind of uh, way that you're seeing it's a progressive web app? Is there is there some tell, or you just you just kind of have to know? Not a very convenient one. Like I mean, the old like you'd literally have to either go view the source, and you could uh, there's some telltale headers that would tell you that it's a progressive web app. Um, or th- there are now a set of tools. Um, there's companies like Ghostery and Built With, um, and they're they're frankly not that convenient to use on mobile. They're they're much more convenient on desktop. Um, but they'll sort of uh, scan the site you're on and give you a report of the the underlying technologies that are being used for that site, and they'll both tell you if you're if you're on a PWA site. Like the only the big user experience tell um, is if you're not in an app and you're uh, you're get you're given like a full interactive uh, site even without um, connectivity, then it's a pretty safe bet that you're 
that you're benefiting from a PWA site. Cool. Uh, so last question, uh, and this comes from Julie Acosta. Uh, and the question is a two-parter. Any updates on multi-touch attribution models and partners and who's doing online, offline, right? Yeah. The old uh, attribution question. Yeah. Uh, I do love a good attribution conversation. Um, so, so first of all, I'd say like there are, uh, you know, an ever increasing number of specialized tools that, um, that do multi-touch attribution models. Um, but what has me most excited is much better tools for doing multi-touch attribution are, um, starting to evolve in our standard analytics packages. So I, I, to my mind, uh, apologies to my friends at IBM and Adobe, I, I feel like the, Google Analytics implementation of multi-touch attribution is maybe a little further ahead, um, but IBM, Adobe, and Google all have multi-attribution models built in. In Google's case, it used to only be available in their uh, expensive premium paid product, and now it's it's made its way down to the free version. Um, <clears throat> and the big evolution in these multi-touch attribution models is you used to have to kind of pick a model. So you could say... Um, <clears throat> hey, I'm interested in a weighted model and this is how it works, or I'm interested in first touch, or I'm interested in last touch, or I'm interested in a decay model where every subsequent touch gets less weight. Um, and you had to kind of manually specify a model and then you could use the analytics tool to look through the data with that lens. Um, now, uh, multi-touch has become sort of uh, machine learning enabled. Um, and so essentially the tool will tell you... Um, which multi-touch model from which uh, amongst the 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 pool of multi-touch models that any given tool supports um, best fits the data set that you have. Um, so you can actually use machine learning to sort of refine the multi-touch model that you use for your particular data, um, and you know you can you can embrace that for your enterprise. Um, and so that's pretty cool. Um, multi-touch is a slightly complicated word because I. I I would argue there's kind of three versions. There's there's online to offline, which is, um, you know, uh, hey, I saw some digital ads on Facebook and uh, I and on Google, and then I walked into a store and bought something. So how do I, you know, attribute that in-store purchase to those those digital touches? Um, I'll, I'll call that multi-channel. Uh, there's multi-touch, like, hey, I saw an ad in Facebook, and then I saw an ad in Google, and then I saw an ad on on uh, Abercrombie and Fitch, and then I bought the shirt. Like, how, you know, which which of those three marketing vehicles gets all the credit or most of the credit, or how do you do that? That's kind of the most traditional version of, of multi-touch that the tools are designed to support. Um, and then there's multi-device, like, hey, I started on a tablet, and then I moved to a phone, and then I ultimately made the purchase on a laptop. Um, how do I do attribution across those devices? Um, and so my answer before it was mostly based on digital multi-touch. Uh, for multi-device, uh, we're, we're starting to see some interesting solutions. Uh, uh, Adobe in particular has this interesting co-op model where they, they're building a shared database amongst all the people that use Google Analytics of all the device IDs that they ever see. And when you have a user on, uh, on a particular device, um, you can go to the co-op and say, what other devices does that same user use? And so you can use this kind of shared data to identify uh, the same user across multiple devices. Um, historically, only the, 
the digital tools that are most likely to have the user authenticated can kind of recognize the same user across devices. And so Google and Facebook have a huge advantage over the rest of the world in uh, multi-device attribution. And then online to offline, uh, we're also starting to see some much better tools. Um, interestingly, both Facebook and Google that want to you to spend more money on digital advertising, it's very important to them that you be able to understand online to offline attribution because a lot of the purchases that you make after seeing their digital ads are in a store. And so they've actually built some pretty good tools that you can upload your offline data into um, and then do online to offline attribution. So um, we're starting to see that a lot more commonly. But when you ask which retailers are are kind of best in class doing it right, it's the retailers with an unfair advantage. Um, and so it's REI um, that has uh, 95% of their purchases coming from members. So they have perfect capture of that that email address, uh, of that member number every time you do a transaction online or uh, in-store. It's Sephora where 95% of their customers are in that customer affinity program and they're able to do very effective online to offline attribution. Uh, it's Starbucks where a very high percentage of the transactions are being done with their mobile payment ecosystem uh, that are doing the best job of online to offline. And, you know, the the more traditional retailers where a lot of the in-store purchases are anonymous, um, you know, they're they're all getting better at doing online to offline attribution, but they're only able to do it for a much smaller set of their data. Cool. Well, uh, thanks to Joan and Julie for asking those questions. I think we're caught up on listener questions. Uh, we we regularly uh, post these over on our Facebook page. So just go to Facebook and search for Jason and Scott Show or go to jasonandscott.com and uh, you'll see a direct over to there. Um, yeah. Awesome. I, uh, Scott, before we sign out, I did want to highlight a couple upcoming uh, opportunities to meet some listeners. Um, so we, we alluded to it earlier in the show, but I am leaving Saturday for a week of retail visits in Australia. Um, so I, I have a bunch of meetings booked with retailers in, uh, Sydney and Melbourne. Um, but if you're a listener that happens to be in Australia, um, be sure to ping me on, uh, uh Twitter sometime in the next week. And, uh, if, if schedules permit, I would, uh, love to meet up, but I'm, I'm really looking forward to learning a lot more about that market and sharing some of, uh, uh, the learnings that we've had in some some more um, mature Amazon markets that maybe we can share with with Australia, which is the newest Amazon market. Um, so so I'm looking forward to that trip. That's going to be uh, fun, and I know my family's looking even more forward to having me be gone for a week. Um, and then early next month, uh, August sixth through the ninth, uh, you and I are going to be live and in person together at the E-Tail East uh, show in Boston. Yeah, yeah, that's going to be a lot of fun. We will go and uh, I plan on wearing, uh, since we'll be in the, you know, the the founding father home, I'm going to wear a white wig for that one. So it'll be exciting. Yeah. And as uh, everyone that's met me in person knows, I just wear a white wig anyway. So that'll be be normal for me. <laughs> look, look for the two uh, founding father types or triangle hats too. Exactly. Uh, and uh, with that, it's it's happened again. We've used up our allotted time. Um, but uh, we, if you have any further questions or we got something wrong on this week's show, we'd love to hear about it. So let's keep the conversation going on Facebook or Twitter. And as always, if uh, you got any value out of this show and you want to reward us, the best thing you can do is go to iTunes and give us that five-star review. 
If you really didn't enjoy the show, the best way to do that is visit Scott in person at his home and give him your feedback. That's appreciated as well. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks for joining us, everybody. Until next time, happy commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com.